This is episode 261 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Building Neuromuscular Tissue with Dr. Ritu Raman. Hello, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Speaking of guests, today we have Dr. Ritu Raman from MIT. She's on the podcast to talk about using biological materials and engineering tools to build living neuromuscular tissues. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we actually have a pretty exciting announcement, which you might or might not be familiar with right now. Stem Cell Technologies has launched officially the Lab Coats and Life podcast, a brand new podcast focused on science careers and useful soft skills in science. Episodes include to postdoc or not to postdoc, the role of preprints in moving science forward, and using social media to make an impact. Podcast is hosted by Dr. Nicole Quinn, Director of Brand and Scientific Communications at Stem Cell Technologies, as well as rotating co-hosts, including yours truly, Daylon, and the hosts of the Immunology Podcast. Find the Lab Coats and Life Podcast on www.labcoatsandlifepodcast.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, Arun. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed it. I just got to say, it's a good thing they didn't tap me for that social media one. I'm pretty useless, but I had something to say about the ones I was on. Please do check it out. I think you guys will enjoy it. Now to the roundup for the first story. I got a story about the lung. All right, we're talking about chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, COPD. I don't know if they call it COPD. Yeah, they should. Um, it's big affects over 700 million individuals worldwide, third leading cause of death behind ischemic heart disease, uh, cardiovascular disease, and, and stroke, you know, the big killers. So that's a lot, you know, this is a huge target. Um, and it's caused by destruction of both the airway and the lung parenchyma. And the current treatment for COPD relies on these bronchodilators, uh, but, you know, that's like a mechanical assist. Uh, there's no effect there on alveolar re regeneration. Um, and for that reason, these patients show persistent decline uh, due to accelerated apoptosis of epithelial cells and the lack of uh, re-epithelialization. Um, uh, so, obviously, as the stem cell show, a, a strategy that a lot of people are thinking of for treatment with COPD is either activation of endogenous stem cells or transplantation of exogenous stem cells. Both regenerative approaches, cell-based, uh, with the idea of getting some new, fresh, healthy cells back in there. Um, and there's a lot. There's a lot of progenitor stem cell types uh, in the lung, epithelial stem and progenitor cell types. Uh, among those, uh, there's a specific, a specific subtype, these airway basal progenitor cells that are uniquely marked by the expression of TP63, also known as P63. Um, and when an organism in the lung is confronted with chronic stress, smoke, whatever, uh, these basal progenitor cells 
um, they lose the regenerative capacity, right? And this leads to chronic lung damage and inflammation, which are the characteristics of COPD. So it's thought that these cells in particular, the airway basal progenitor cells, may be at the root of that etiology of COPD. Um, and in patients with stage four COPD, uh, although their, their P63 cells are vastly diminished, um, again, also linking the P63 population to disease, there are still a few of those cells that can be found in samples that are uh, obtained by bronchoscope. So like almost a fourth, let's say if you get uh, normal to healthy to unhealthy cell ratio, about like four out of five healthy in a, in a uh, normal healthy individual, you get that knocked down about like, I don't know, one, two out of five. So there's still some there is the, is the bottom line. And those cells still retain the capacity to differentiate into secretory ciliated cell types, secretory and ciliated, ciliated cell types, and they can re reconstitute the airway epithelium. Um, and these cells in vivo are the ones that respond to this large scale damage in the lung by, and here's the thing, they migrate out of the bronchi and the bronchioles and then they can contribute to repair and generation regeneration of the alveoli. So this could be a, a really, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I'd say promiscuous operator, probably not the right adjective to use there, but the point being a jack of all trades, I don't know, you get the idea. There's a cell can do multiple things and, and wholesale contribute to their regenerative process. And uh, a group comprised of multiple investigators, a lot of leads on this, a story out of multiple universities in China, Leads made up of Nan Shanzhong, Jaitan uh, Dai, Shi Yuli, and Wei Zhuo. And uh, that, among that group, previously they had shown in mouse models of disease that you can transplant these P63 cells and they work, they improve lung regeneration. And get this, like eight years ago, almost a decade ago, in a pilot study in two patients, they did this intra transplant. Um, of these P63 cells to patients, and they showed some encouraging results. Based on that, they went into a larger scale clinical trial, and that's what we're talking about here in science translational medicine, where they, uh, they were able to do this intrapulmonary P63 progenitor cell transplantation in 28 participants that were stage two to four COPD. Uh, they got the cells by this bronchoscopic brushing cultured them for three to five weeks and then transplanted back into that same patient at a dose of about either between somewhere between like one and five million cells per kilogram of body weight. Um, of the 28, there were 20 patients that could be evaluated at the end of the trial or at one of the, or the first endpoint, I guess. They showed no adverse events. They had 17 that were in the intervention group, three in the control, heavily weighted towards the intervention, of course, as you would expect. I don't know that you want to do a sham uh, in these patients. Um, they found that uh, at 24 weeks after transplantation, there was improvement in gas transfer capacity. That was impressive. And remember, these patients are in decline. So in the control group, it was like minus 20%. Uh, they had declined by 20. In the intervention group, they had improved by 20%. Also, another measure was how far they could walk in six, six minutes, and they went from about like 400 uh, meters to a lot of the patients in the control declined, as you might expect, and there was a mild, although not terribly significant improvement in the inter intervention group. And then uh, next level, they actually did some transcriptomic analysis of the cells. They could bin the patients into the ones that responded 
within the intervention group, ones that responded versus the ones that did not respond as well. And they showed that the, well, the, the, the group that responded well um, was characterized by increased expression of P63 in those progenitor cells. So I don't know how much you want to pin on P63 as being the primary mover of regenerative capacity or not. Uh, could just be a marker, but it seems like there's evidence that high P P63 is associated with high regenerative capacity. So I don't know. This to me was a, a big story because I guess we've been so caught up in in the the translation of these uh, pluripotent stem cell based therapies that I was really impressed and surprised to know that this adult based adult stem cell based therapy that has been conceived of and in play for almost a decade now moving into patients, showing positive results. I mean, light them up, uh, Arun. Maybe the days to, I'm not encouraging smoking or any drug use. I want to be clear here. But uh, there's a whole generation of people who might be affected not just by smoking, pollution, what have you, that may have a therapy here now. It's not too late. That's the key. One-fifth of your lung progenitor cells, even if you're a heavy smoker, may still be all right. And we can amplify those and get them back in and give you some hope for recovery for all those COPD patients out there. So a really exciting uh, story for me, Arun, in, in the realm of adult stem cells. Yeah, let's let's not light it up, Dylan. Let's uh, don't do drugs, kids. Don't smoke because um, COPD is a serious problem. Like you mentioned, just the numbers of people who are afflicted by this is ridiculous, closing up to like a billion people, which is again a reflection of how prevalent tobacco use and smoking was historically. But yeah, you're totally right. It's not just the smoking, even though that's probably a big reason why this is happening, but it's the the pollution in developing countries uh, around the world. You know, it's a variety of factors that are contributing to COPD. So it's a huge medical problem. And I think this is actually, I was really impressed by the results here. Um, and not to hate on science translational medicine. I love science translational medicine. I've published there, but I was actually surprised that this wasn't even a like a higher impact paper because the the differences here and the the improvement in the patients actually who received this cell therapy is pretty striking. I mean, the they say it, the intervention group showed a greater than 30 meter increase in walking distance within a six minutes. That's that's very impressive. Um, so this is doing a pretty effective job in this regender cell therapy. And you're totally right. I and mean, we have a bias on this show, I think, as pluripotent stem cell biologists that we like to default to pluripotent stem cells or iPSCs or whatever as your you know de facto basis of every single cell therapy that's coming out and about now. And we know that's not the case. This is an adult per gender population that's having this tremendous restorative potential. Um, so don't forget about these, you know, progenitor populations as well, these multipotent, unipotent populations too. Yes. And I, I think we get so excited about the pluripotent because for a lot of these patients that are suffering from neurodegenerative disease, they, they've run out of healthy progenitors, right? But in this case, there is the, the, the vestiges of some, some uh, healthy apparatus there. And you mentioned it here in, in like places like China. I mean, I was in China for a conference. I was so bummed out. It was like I was walking in the club back in the 90s before they got rid of the indoor smoking you know it was it was so stifling so yes a uh, uh, a bit of good news for any of those patients who are struggling with air pollution or any kind of kind of disease of the lung that um could be addressed with this adult stem cell population great story absolutely and not just china i mean 
in India as well, it's definitely an issue. I've had uh, <laughs> my struggles when I've gone back to India at times in the winter and it's been really polluted. But hey, I live in LA, so <laughs> this is very close to home and you live in New York too. So, you know, even here in the United States, we have major pollution issues. And, uh, you know, the other part of this is, like you alluded to, even in patients with really severe COPD, they can still harness their lung progenitors from those individuals and amplify them for autologous use. So that, I think that in itself provides a lot of hope for uh, COPD inflicted individuals. And like we're talking about, this is a huge, huge problem. So really, really cool story. Um, talking about another disease that we're all familiar with and that we know has a huge burden on the medical system here in the US and around the world is diabetes, of course. Um, and there's been a lot, a lot of work in this particular area being done over the last few years, especially in the pluripotent stem cell realm. We, we were hating a little bit on PSCs for a second there, but a lot of cell therapies are focused on pluripotent stem cell derived pancreatic beta cells, for example. I mean, Vertex, Semitherapeutics, all these folks have been working on these things, right? And the goal is to restore insulin production in, in individuals who have who are afflicted with diabetes, right? And or restore proper glucose regulation in that way. Um, one of the folks who has really been leading the charge in this area of study is Sonia Schrepfer over there at, uh, she was previously at UCSF and now at SANA, and I think has some affiliation with both actually. Um, this is a cell stem cell paper building off of a, a range of work that she's been working on from her laboratory and from her division at SANA. Um, the title of this paper is Hypoimmune Islets Achieve Insulin Independence After Allogeneic Transplantation in a Fully Immunocompetent Non-Human Primate. Um, so this is an in vivo study in just a limited number of rhesus macaque donors. Um, basically what they're able to do is to uh, do gene editing to create primary islets that are modified so that they are able to be immunocompatible in a diabetic monkey. All right. So they, they have this allogeneic transplantation of genetically engineered, and they have like this, you know, basically three different targets that they modify B2M, CIITA, and then CD47 plus, um, and Gen to generate these primary hypoimmune, so immunocompatible pseudo islets or P islets. And the, they've done some aspect of this before. They've done a version of the study that's used you know, pluripotent stem cell derived islets, and uh, uh, as well as uh, engraftment of these modified islets, primary islets in, into a, a healthy monkey. All right, that study has been done before. But the, the key of this study is this is an animal the the host animal is a diabetic animal, all right? So it's more analogous to what you would actually see in the human situation where the people getting these cell therapies are gonna be those afflicted with diabetes, right? Um, so they uh, engraft these pseudo-islets, these genetically modified pseudo-islets into a fully immunocompetent diabetic non-human primate, this rhesus macaque, where, and the, they show this in the results, they provide the stable endocrine function, enable insulin independence without any sort of detectable immune response. That's huge. That's really huge. No immunosuppressants here. That's another huge, huge uh, mark of the studies. No immunosuppression. So you literally just insert these modified islets into the animal, into the diabetic animal, and it's able to aut automatically regulate um, it's insulin and restore proper glucose uh, homeostasis after that. And so this is potentially, um, you know, setting up, and this is setting up their clinical trials, right? This is 
an important piece of preclinical data that's going to directly feed into their clinical trials here, where these hypoimmune primary islets may actually provide a curative cell therapy, their words, not mine, for type 1 diabetes, right? And, you know, the other part of this is which approach ultimately is going to win out here? Is it the, the IPS-derived approach or is it the primary approach? Um, maybe it's some combination of both, but I think the real key here and uh, the reason why this is a cell stem cell paper and why this is getting a ton of press is the hypoimmune component of this approach. No immunosuppression required. Um, just by genetically modifying these primary islets, you can get them to survive long-term and do what they're supposed to do. So this is super exciting. And I love it when Dr. Shrepfer has talked about this at ISSCR and other meetings as well. It's just, I think, one of the most exciting, potentially curative cell therapies out there right now in the stem cell field. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, it's been exciting, I should say, because this is a idea, this hypoimmunity idea that's been kicking around for a long time and is now finding, finally culminating in results that are super meaningful. And it's like, you know, one after the next, right? You talked about the pluripotent stem cell derived hypoimmune cells and the monkey that persisted. Here is the more therapeutic curative here where they have primary islets, the limitation of both being real, right? The pluripotent one, we have unlimited cells, but the idea that there may be some retention of pluripotent cells that could form teratoma, that's a risk, right? Uh, versus the primary here, which is, you know, tried and true. We've been transplanting islets for a long time now. In this case, making it hypoimmune so you don't have to get immune rejection. When these two ideas, but they're fundamentally limited is the idea, right? Um, when you can combine these two approaches to have an unlimited source with no retained pluripotent uh, cells and no risk, or even mitigating the risk with, say, like a suicide you know, cassette or something, uh, and then incorporate that and, and make them functional, I guess that's the, the final... Well, there's going to be four or five more stories that come out of here in high-profile journals, but I guess the the holy grail is to get a pluripotent cell with some kind of safety mechanism or proven uh, lack of retention of pluripotency that can function and integrate. And I guess that's the remaining question with pluripotent stem cell-derived products is can they behave like that end-game adult cell uh, that we're getting in the primary transplants? And... I don't see why not. I feel like there's been so much work geared toward that endpoint. It's just getting a self. It was like kind of the most progress we've made, I would say, in, in pluripotent stem cells is getting beta cells that are true, bona fide, mature. I don't know. But the gentonics who maybe could come in there, either way, I think the momentum is building toward the first big splash cure for the most people here in these hypoimmune uh, pluripotent stem cell derived islets. I think that's going to be it. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think this is the disease. This is the scenario that's going to benefit first from pluripotent stem cell derived therapy and potentially a, a curative approach here. I mean, this is building on, for example, Doug Melton's 30 plus years of work in making bona fide pancreatic beta cells and islets from pluripotent stem cells and so on. 
Um, but also just the amino compatibility component of the study is, is just astounding and really, really important to consider. You mentioned the limitations of both approaches, you know, so the primary, of course, there's a limited number of donors to actually work with, and then uh, the immaturity potentially of the, the pluripotent stem cell derived. But we, like you said, we've gotten so, so good at maturing these cells over the last few years. Uh, so many different stories coming out of the Gentonic, like you mentioned. Um, one thing to taken to consideration here, and this came up before when we were talking about the vertex results as well, this is a very limited number of animals. So like an N of less than five. Okay. And, uh, you know, that's the limitation with a lot of these studies is for one, they're expensive to do these kind of studies. I mean, I'm assuming Sana has the money to do this kind of stuff, but, um, you have to be careful with interpreting some of these results in such a limited data set. And I think, you know, Vertex got a little bit of flack for that as well, because they had that story that came out in the New York Times a while back. Remember that? Where they're saying, okay, we implanted the cells and this guy was cured of type 1 diabetes, uh, but it was an N of 1. And we're still waiting to hear the results from those extended clinical trials. But like you're mentioning, they're inevitable. And I'm maybe even at ISCR this year, we're going to hear more about it. Yeah, I mean, the N is one thing, and also the, the time scale, right? I mean, we've cured probably thousands of, of mice with diabetes, and then we watch them for the rest of their life, and then we publish the paper. With these monkey stories, you got to wait. You got to wait for efficacy. And as you're alluding to, I think there is some question in terms of like the long-term efficacy, whether or not you're going to have to redose these patients, whether the etiology that under underlies the diabetes in the first place may, you know, rear its head and attack the graft. Who knows? There's a lot of open questions, I think, in terms of uh, whether or not this is going to be uh, the final solution. But I, I think that the the, the efficacy uh, and the way that all the different kind of roadblocks or, or obstacles have been addressed, I think it makes this... I, I love it. I love this is the culmination of so much work and done so well and so carefully that I think that this should be kind of the light for all of us to to look toward uh, when when approaching our own uh, disease arenas. Um, speaking of diseases that are really close to the clinic, you know, we had this session with Blue Rock, which was amazing in really reflecting on how far we've come in neurodegenerative conditions. Um, I got a story here, a, a nature story that's about ALS and uh, other proteinopathies that are driven by TDP43, okay? So TDP43, it's a protein that accumulates uh, in, in uh, neurons uh, in the context of many neurodegenerative diseases, specifically amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, as well as frontotemporal lobar, lobar uh, dementia. Um, and T TDP43, it's a RNA binding protein, and in a normal cell, uh, it in the nucleus, it controls the processing of like hundreds of downstream RNA targets. Um, and in the context of disease or neurogenic conditions, you get these pathological aggregates of TDP43 that trap uh, newly synthesized TDP43 so that that trapped P TDP43 cannot perform its normal function. Um, and that normal function is in large part unknown. There's a lot of targets of TDP43, uh, and, but what it ultimately leads to is splicing misregulation of all those RNA targets. Um, and it's been 
shown. Uh, a couple of those targets have been identified, uh, STMN2 and UNC13A, that have been uh, shown to be significantly reduced in patients with these TDP43 proteinopathies, right? So the idea that there's these misregulated proteins downstream of TD43 in the context of disease has uh, motivated the development of uh, human models because this TDP43 RNA function and proteinopathy, it's really unique to the human system and not only to the human system, but to neurons in the human system, not surprisingly, tough to model neurodegenerative conditions in laboratory animals. Um, but uh, there's this motivation to try and get a human model that will allow us to identify more of these TDP43 targets, right? But the problem is that anytime you using neuro, neuro pluripotent stem cell derived neuronal models to, to try and understand the TDP43 targets, uh, you knock out or you mess with TDP43 and you don't really see any pathology. And, and the major reason it's thought is because uh, these, as we're, we've been talking about, uh, newly differentiated neurons from pluripotent stem cells are not mature, and therefore they don't have the, the machinery, perhaps, to reflect that uh, TDP43-based pathology. So in this story uh, from Magdalene Polymenidou, uh, who's at University of Zurich, uh, the group, they focused on generating a model that incorporated neural cells derived from pluripotent stem cells uh, here, they call them uh, stem cell-derived colony morphology neural stem cells, ICOMO-NSCs. They got to uh, talk to, to Noblik about the acronyms there. They could do a lot better. But uh, the point here is that they get these self-renewing kind of monotypic clones, neuroprecursors, and then they these neuroprecursors can self-organize into these electrophysiologically active functional networks that they call INETs. And they differentiate the, these INETs to really late time points to show that they exhibit the, the behavior of mature neural networks and then overexpress wild type TDP43 in a subset of those cells and show that indeed there is aggregation of the protein. It results in loss of function, results in toxicity in those neurons. So they're modeling kind of the neuropathy there. Um, and then they did single cell transcriptomics and showed that there are novel misregulated RNA targets, uh, the most notable of which was the synaptic protein NPTX2, right? And then here's the next key here. They showed that when NPTX2 was overexpressed in these INETs, they could uh, phenocopy that neurotoxicity. Whereas if they took the TDP phenotype and they rescued N NPTX2, they brought it back to a normal level downstream of TDP2, they could uh, partially rescue that neurodegeneration. So it looks like they established a link not only between TDP43 and NTPTX2, but show that there was kind of a rescue there. And then finally, and here's why I think they got it to the level of a Nature article, they looked into patients uh, with ALS and frontotemporal lobar generation um, that was based on TDP43, and they showed that NPTX2 was indeed misaccumulated in neurons. So I think that's how you get there with these nature articles is you have this unbiased approach to identify a target, you follow up that target, you show that it has some functional relevance. And then at the very end, you go into the patients and say, hey, this factor is also messed up in the patients. Is that the time sequence in which it happened? I would bet my life that it wasn't. 
but at least that's how the story was laid out. And it sounds really neat and tidy. And I, for one, am impressed just because, you know, any target with ALS um, is a big deal. You know, my boy Cheeto over there, I hope you're listening. You got to watch out. Magdalene is coming after you, partner. No, absolutely. This is a very hot area of study. And, you know, Cheetah's just in my neck of the woods here in LA. And also at my home institution is Clive Svensson, who we know really well is also not a rival of a cheetah. They're, they're buddies, but also working very heavily on this ALS field. And yeah, like what you're alluding to, I think any sort of basic mechanism to better understand the pathology of ALS is really badly needed because it's such a devastating, devastating disease. Both of these diseases, including FTD, FTLD, um, I think, you know, some of the cultures here, uh, we were talking about it before the show, are pretty impressive in terms of the timeline, in terms of the scale of, of the, the culture of the neurons here. I mean, months and months of culture, but you're seeing that, you know, the maturation over time. So I think that's really exciting to see. You know, part of the, the thing that excites me about a lot of these studies, especially some of the ones that are coming out in the ALS modeling side of things, I think even Clive led a few of these, is, is just the broad scale of them. You know, I know I remember Clive's lab came out with a study where they used IPS derived neurons from hundreds of ALS individuals and just uh, looking at patient specific differences in response as well as gender specific differences in ALS. Um, and I think a lot of these studies, including this one potentially, could be really easily integrated with deep learning and machine learning because just the the data sets that you're generating from this kind of stuff is is absurd. It, not just the, the genetic data sets with the transcriptomic analysis and in the situation comparing it to the, the, the organoid cultures, but the electrophysiological data sets. I mean, there's a lot of patterns in there that we as human beings just cannot tease apart. You need a computer to do that kind of stuff. So it makes a lot of sense. All these technologies kind of converging ultimately to give a little bit more hope to folks with ALS, right? Absolutely. And I, I like what you said there because, yeah, we, we've been so fixated with our simple brains on like the, you know, monogenic paradigm, right? Where we, we link one factor to one outcome. Um, and this is about networks. And it, if nothing else, this story tells you that this kind of master regulator, this RNA binding protein, you know, dysfunction in this one thing affecting a broad network across a number uh, of different signaling or transcriptional or whatever uh, networks, you know, that, that, that has a phenotype. And what's curious to me is that uniquely in neurons, you know, I, I'd be surprised if this, if TDP 43 uh, wasn't doing something in other cells. So that's something to think about as well. But yeah, as you're saying here, the, the power of, of machine learning to dig deeper into these data sets, it's almost like they're evergreen. Every, every generation, of the, you know, Skynet, whatever you want to call it, as it gets better, you're going to get a, a new answer potentially. And each one of those answers, as you say, is very relevant to someone who's struggling with disease. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's for these complicated multigenic diseases, you know, you have to incorporate some of these more advanced approaches like machine learning and all that. Uh, monogenic diseases, we all love them. And historically, that's been the, the low-hanging fruit in terms of how to dissect their, their disease mechanism and all that. But we're talking about stuff like ALS, even, you know, for example, Sergio Pasca, what he does with modeling schizophrenia and all these uh, neuropsychiatric diseases. That's, those are complex disorders, right? They're often not monogenic. And if you even think about something like uh, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, a lot of these things are 
very complicated in terms of their genetics. So I think you have to incorporate some of these more advanced approaches, right? And we're going to wrap things up here with a really fun story. It's not so much a science-heavy story. It's more of a policy or educational-oriented story. Um, this is a stem cell reports, I guess you could call it a resource paper, titled Give Heart Cells a Beat in an Interactive Museum Exhibit that Synchronizes Stem Cell-Derived Cardiomyocytes to Visitors' Heartbeat. This is fun. This is really fun. I saw this on, on Twitter, actually, or X or whatever you want to call it. Uh, Benoit Bruneau tweeted about it. And I have some friends who actually visited this exhibit at the Exploratorium in San Francisco. So next time you're in town in NorCal in San Francisco and you're a fan of IPS cardiomyocytes or just a fan of cool science exhibits, check this out. Um, basically, what they've been able to set up in collaboration with the, the Gladstone Institute over there in San Francisco is a an interactive IPS cardiomyocyte exhibit where, you know, anybody can go in there. You basically put your hands on these sensors and you can synchronize the contractility of IPS cardiomyocytes that are being grown in the adjacent room to your own heartbeat, which is pretty fun. I mean, it conceptually, it's really kind of simple, right? You're just, you're just pacing these cells. Um, but I think from the perspective of like, uh, like a student or a kid who wants to learn more about the science that we do, or just wants to be inspired by cool science, I think this is a really great way to do it. So literally you can just put your hands on the sensor and then it, the, the cardiomyocytes in the next room will just sync up to, to your heartbeat. And you'll be like, wow, that's really exciting. Look at those human heart cells. Those are, are those my cells that are beating in front of me and projected on the screen? No, they're in the next room. But, uh, but still, really exciting concept, really fun. You can do like this exercise test. So you, obviously if you, you know, jump around, do some jumping jacks, do some push-ups, your heart rate's going to go up. And then you put your hand on the sensor and you can see that the IPS cardiomyocyte heart rate goes up too. How fun, right? Um, really, really fun exhibit there. I think kudos to the Gladstone Institute for, for putting this together and the Exploratorium as well. And I'm going to take my, my three-year-old son up there <laughs> next time we visit San Francisco and, and check this out. And maybe he'll be inspired to do what I do. Maybe not. <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to take like a, make a joke of it, but I actually think it's so cool. I think that there's the outreach element that is so important and you and I appreciate that I think as much as anybody in, in science communication that you know getting people to engage is is you've already won if you've got them in the room um but also I don't know technically you you know better than I but that's that sounds to me like there were some technical hurdles that had to be addressed here that were novel you know, I, I don't I don't know if you came into a room and be like, hey, can you sync it to any stranger comes up with this, that and the other that anyone would be like, oh, yeah, I've done that. So I would say there's novelty there and novelty that maybe turned back into an actual, not actual, a, a more practical, I think, directed scientific solution that's, that has the intent of, of meeting some unmet medical need. I believe that. I believe that the approach here could be used toward that or some other thing. But more than anything, it's the outreach for me. You know, that that idea, I think that that's the the beating cardiomyocyte is the archetypal transformative experience as a stem cell scientist. You were there, Arun, like I was looking into the dish and you're looking down at, you know, gray, and then suddenly there's some movement and you're like, what? I think that it's hard to actually have that experience for anyone coming into the museum, right? They weren't growing them from scratch. They didn't have that transformation, but there's still, I think that same idea of ownership where it's like, wait, I did that. You know, I touched the thing and now that living thing is synced to me. I think that maybe 
that can can provide some simulacrum of, of that transformative moment that a lot of us share as stem cell scientists that I, I can honestly say kept me going for fully 10 years. I would have burnt out 10 years earlier if I hadn't seen that. Hey, I, you don't have to tell me this. I mean, this is the reason why I'm still doing what I'm doing. Like when I first saw those initial beating IPS cardiomyocytes that I made as like a, a, a late stage undergrad, I was hooked. You know, this was the coolest thing in the world. And even now, when I go into my cell culture uh, hood over there, and I'm not doing as much cell culture now as a PI, obviously, um, when I see my students make those IPS cardiomyocytes for the first time and seeing their faces light up, it, it gets me going, right? It's it's still so cool, even 15 years later, uh, seeing those things contract for the first time. And you're right. I mean, this is inspirational. It's inspiring folks very young kids who might be interested in science and seeing something like this and thinking about, wait, these are beating human heart cells outside of the body that I could potentially make from my own skin or blood. Some folks don't realize that it's not science fiction anymore. It's real. I mean, we've been doing this kind of stuff for a while now yeah, after IPSCs have come, come out. So for the listeners in the show out there, just take a step back and reflect on how cool what you're the stuff you're doing actually is because folks who are not in this field might think that what we're doing is impossible and it's not right. We can make these things. We can make beating human heart cells outside the body from a sample of skin or blood. It's not science fiction. It's real. And stuff like this is, I think, inspiring those future generations. hundred percent. I mean, this is the oldest story in, in sci-fi since the days of Dr. Frankenstein, right? Let there be life. Uh, just a strike of electricity and you got those beating cardiomyocytes and you did it. Hopefully it doesn't come and kill the whole village. Um, but that brings us to the end of the roundup. We're about to come in and talk to Ritu Raman about something similar, kind of making movement, making life from something that wasn't alive. Uh, can't wait to hear about that. Before we get there, I got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. The ISSCR annual meeting. It's coming up this July. It's in Hamburg, Germany, you guys. This meeting is globally recognized for its exceptional scientific program, weaving together a broad spectrum of topics in stem cell biology, new technologies, and clinical applications. Arun and I can't wait to connect with scientists from around the world and find out about their latest research findings. And we're going to keep you updated with developments coming from our show, as well as developments coming from the ISSCR as we move forward. Stay tuned, guys. Can't wait. A few short months away. All right, everybody. Today on the show, we have a special guest from MIT, Dr. Ritu Raman, who is a Darbalov Career Development Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering, as I said, at MIT. Dr. Raman's lab is focused on using biological materials and engineering tools to build living neuromuscular tissues. These biological actuators help them understand and manipulate the architecture and function of the biological motor control system. And the goal there is to help restore mobility to those who have lost it after disease or trauma and to deploy biological actuators as functional components in machines. Ritu, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is ours. Yeah, you have a, a relatively newish lab at MIT, which is, as everybody who knows anything knows, uh, is ground zero for innovation at the interface kind of of biology, engineering, and material science amongst other fields. 
Um, but I mean, needless to say, it's a, it's an amazing sandbox, so to speak, to start your independent career in. And, and we really appreciate you sharing your experience with our listeners. But why don't you start off by telling us in your own words what the focus and long-term goals of your lab's research are? Sure, happy to. Um, so I'm a mechanical engineer by training, bachelor's, master's, PhD. And I think the thing that kind of brought me to the field largely is that I like building things, right? I like building gadgets and machines and robots. Um, and over time, I became sort of interested in how engineers could build with biological materials in a way that was predictable and led to some interesting functional outcomes. And so that's a very big kind of idea. So the specific thing that my lab is focusing on um, for the next few years, at least, is thinking about how we can build the biological motor control system from scratch. So this thinking about skeletal muscle as an actuator, motor neurons that are controlling the actuation of skeletal muscle, and then potentially sensory neurons that um, detect the rate and degree of stretch. And thinking about how we can sort of integrate all of these things in uh, engineered tissue. And as you very nicely summarized in the intro, um, we're interested in medical applications of our work. So thinking about how we could use these tissues to model disease or potentially treat disease as engineered tissue implants. Um, but we also, because we're engineers, um, look at the tissues that we make and say, hey, we have something that can generate force and produce motion. So why not build a robot um, that uses living muscle and living neurons um, to navigate its environment? So these are the sort of broad um, things we focus on. An emerging area uh, in our group is also thinking about how we leverage tools like 3D bioprinting to make these really complex 3D architectures. Because when it was just me, you know, 10 years of pipetting experience, tissues looked somewhat the same every time. But as you mentioned, we're a very new lab training lots of new people. And so now we're trying to think about how do we more reproducibly manufacture these tissues at scale? Yeah, I mean, these are all really important questions. And, you know, the bioengineering side of things is something that we don't always get to here on the show. I mean, we're first and foremost a stem cell biology, a cell biology, regenerative medicine show. But honestly, one of my favorite things about the modern stem cell field is how easily it intersects with some of the technologies that you're talking about. I mean, we've had a number of folks here on the show who are using bioengineered technologies, such as working on chip, 3D bioprinting, and so on to understand these fundamental biological questions as they pertain to like tissue regeneration, tissue generation. Um, but when it comes to actually making bioengineered tissues for translational applications, like what you're alluding to, I, I sometimes think there are two different camps of scientists out there. I mean, there's the folks maybe on the cell biology side of things who think nature maybe is the best bioengineer and seek to manipulate genetic and signaling mechanisms to grow organs better in vivo. And then there's the more engineer-oriented folks who are, you know, perhaps taking an engineering-oriented approach to like print or construct organs ex vivo. Maybe that's more along the lines of what you're aiming to get at. So what do you think about this sort of yin and yang of generating organs and tissues? Do you think we have to decide on one or the other? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm actually not too strongly in any camp. I mean, I'm an engineer, so I use the tools that I know, but I think there's a lot to be said for understanding sort of bottoms up self-assembly of systems, right? Just because I'm sort of taking more of a tissue engineering approach to neuromuscular systems where maybe I say differentiate skeletal muscle, differentiate skeletal and motor neurons, stick them together, see how they talk to each other. Is it wrong to do an organoid-based approach? Uh, no, um, I might say that in a grant application, but I don't actually think that, right? Um, so I think that 
I kind of appreciate both perspectives and I can we can learn from both. One thing that I really like about sort of the top-down engineering type approach for more of the robotics work we do is that part of what we want to think about when we think about building with biology is not just um, creating architectures that already exist in nature, but potentially creating actuators and sensors and processors that are specific to a certain type of robot or machine and might not mimic something that already exists. So for that, being able to do a little bit more top-down control ends up being more meaningful. But I think we all can learn a lot from people who are taking different approaches. Great answer. Uh, political, but at the same time, sharing the reality that we all take a pretty hard stance in the grant proposals uh, that may be a little bit exclusive. But in reality, there's room enough for all these approaches, right? And we need them all mm -hmm. we need to leverage them all in order to, to make any progress um, toward our common goals, right? But uh, along those lines, I mean, you're talking about these kind of, I guess, biological machines, but I, I love also your angle is that we're also caught up in trying to recapitulate this biological machine um, and in many cases using these engineering approaches. But what I love about what you just said and what you're doing clearly is that you're kind of taking lessons from the biology to build machines that may not really be bound by the limitations of biology even. This is like a completely new entity here using the principles of biology and the complexity and all those interfaces to get something out there that's brand new. Whether or not it recapitulates the function of these biological machines is kind of secondary. So I, I think that's super cool. But getting back, you know, to the, again, Arun was saying, it's a stem cell show. We focus mostly on regenerative medicine applications thereof. Uh, a big idea there in terms of bioengineering is making these cells into like surrogates or proxies for tissues and organs, of course. Um, and the huge gap th there between theory and practice is why we, we've gotten the cells to behave and even organize in these complex uh, assembloids and other type of biological entities. Um, the scale is a major challenge. Uh, getting these things, we've even done it in like mouse, pretty amazing things, but the scale to get into a human-sized system uh, it's tough. I mean, one facet of the work that that, uh, that you've done here that tried to address uh, this kind of scale question is thinking about volumetric muscle loss uh, with this targeted actuation. Tell us a bit about that. And also how, I mean, you have a completely different way of thinking. And I know you're kind of moving beyond the, I guess, bounds of the biological machines to create something brand new. But that said, how would these kind of volumetric muscle loss approaches with the targeted actuation, how does that compare? How would that be a leap forward to the current state of the art, which may be like a more cell-based, you know, the cells growing into the into the damaged tissue? Can you talk to us about your approach and how it compares? Sure, yeah. So maybe just to orient people a little bit on volumetric muscle loss. Um, I want to assume everyone is a skeletal muscle fan in your audience. Um, but sort of very large volume damages to muscles, we're talking like 15 to 20% of the original muscle volume are very hard from us to recover from, right? We have some satellite cells that can try to populate the site after damage, but usually um, the amount of tissue they would have to make and the amount of time that they would need um, is, is quite a challenge. So there's a lot of fibrotic scarring and typically um, lifelong loss of mobility after these really traumatic injuries. And so, you know, we're not the first to think about 
can we tissue engineer a skeletal muscle graft and implant it at the site of injury? A lot of people have tried that to some success. I would say largely sort of summarizing the literature, you could maybe think that maybe after two to three months, you may might get in a mouse, um, sometimes in a sheep, uh, about 70% functional recovery um, of muscle contraction and mobility, which is pretty good, but it's not where we'd want to be ideally, right? Particularly because traumatic injury doesn't necessarily happen to people later in life. So a lot of times it happens earlier in life, and then you're kind of stuck with this for a long period of time. Um, so our thought, uh, kind of informed by some of the work we'd done in vitro, was thinking about the fact that one of the reasons why we think that previous muscle grafts haven't worked as well is that it takes a pretty long time for the surrounding tissue to um, innervate and vascularize the muscle tissue that's been implanted. And in that time, the graft is sitting there just kind of like ugh, atrophying, right? Because it can't be controlled. Um, so we thought maybe if we can exercise just the graft after it's been implanted, um, we could keep it active while we um, wait for innervation and vascularization to occur. Um, so our approach was in a mouse to create a volumetric muscle loss model, uh, put in our engineered muscle tissue graphs, and specifically we used um, muscle that was optogenetic, so could contract and respond to blue light. Um, so then we implanted it, covered up the skin, and then over a period of month, a few times a week, um, flashed light on the limb um, for a period of 15 to 30 minutes. And essentially what we saw is that within about a couple weeks, um, the mice were able to voluntarily recruit their muscle and run at pre-injury speeds very quickly. Um, and that was very exciting to us because, you know, we did some electromyography of the muscle and we saw that, you know, both injured and healthy and treated muscle, they were all kind of similarly electrically active, meaning that there was good muscle in all cases. But in the exercised muscle case, you had um, the ability to voluntarily recruit the muscle, which implies the growth of motor neurons into the graft and the formation of functional neuromuscular junctions. Um, so that was very exciting. And then we were like, well, maybe there's something more going on here than just the muscle is being prevented from atrophying. Um, so we did some phosphoproteomic analysis of our exercise graphs, um, both in vivo and in vitro. And what we saw was that the exercise muscle appeared to upregulate a lot of signaling pathways related to angiogenesis and um, axonogenesis and neurite guidance and neuromuscular junction formation. Um, so this was very exciting. And I can tell you, I've been talking for a while, but I can tell you some more in vitro follow-up data on this too. But essentially, I think what we learned from that um, is that when we're implanting a graft, it's not enough to just passively put something in place and then walk away. It's also important to think about how to mediate communication between the implanted cells and the surrounding tissues to encourage integration um, of the therapy. So that's a, I think, really important learning um, from that study that we're trying to build on now. Yeah, that's that's super cool. And as a cardiac biologist, I can appreciate, you know, just the importance of biomechanical stimulation in not just muscle maturation, but regeneration after injury. So I think this it's a really great approach that you're taking. Um, you mentioned a little bit about some of the in vitro studies that you're doing. You actually had another really cool study published in the Cell Press Journal device, which I think has a lot of potential for stem cell related applications. I mean, your lab was able to mechanically program anisotropy in engineered muscle with this custom magnetically responsive extracellular matrix. And I mean, like I said, I'm a cardiac biologist, and I know that directionality is super important when it comes to fun like functional muscle maturation. Um, we all know in the stem cell field that 
immaturity is the biggest problem when it comes to all stem cell derived tissues and especially cardiac and skeletal muscles. So could you tell us a little bit more about that work and maybe how it might be able to address some of those concerns about maturation? Yeah, happy to. And I'm, I'm happy you saw it. I think one interesting thing I noticed about that paper, because it came out in a cell press journal, is that a lot of engineers saw it, but way more biologists than usually see my work um, saw it. And that, that made me very happy. Um, but yeah, so sort of broad premise of what we were trying to do there, right, is like as mechanical engineers, we're always thinking about how do mechanical forces um, in a cell's environment impact growth and differentiation and response to injury. And we wanted a way to very carefully tune the forces that cells might be experiencing in their environment and program both, you know, where they were happening and how intense they were um, in space and time. So the way we did this is actually like a fairly, I think, simple idea where we took a extracellular matrix gel. So we used fibrin, but you could do this with collagen or matrigel or gelatin or whatever your gel of choice is. Um, and we wanted to do this because we know from our experience, right, that different cells like very different substrates and we don't want to mess with people's um, biology too much. So for us, we use fibrin substrates a lot for our muscles and our motor neurons. So we cast a fibrin gel as normal, but inside the fibrin gel, we had tiny microparticles um, that had um, essentially that were magnetic. Um, so what this meant is that they're just sitting in there normally. If the cell is sitting on top of the gel, it can't sense that there's a magnetic microparticle under it because all it feels under it is gel. Um, but if you move a magnet back and forth under the gel, um, essentially you're sort of pulling those magnetic microparticles back and forth and they're deforming the gel around them. Um, so by stretching and moving the gel in this way, any cell that's seated on the gel or in the gel is feeling those forces and can then respond to it. Um, and we, in that paper, we focus a lot on sort of depending on, you know, what's the size of the microparticle, how strong is the magnet, how thick is the gel, how stiff is the gel, all of these different parameters can be tuned to tune the force that a cell might be experiencing over a very broad range. Um, and this was important to us because it's obviously depending on where you are in the body, um, you might be experiencing a very different range of forces ranging from the piconewton um, to significantly higher. So all this to say, we made the gel platform and then we wanted to see, um, we actually wanted to see how um, stem cell derived motor neurons responded to mechanical stimulation. Um, that works unpublished, but I'm happy to share because I'm writing the paper right now. But before we get to that, um, the neurons are a little finicky and harder to work with. So we're like, well, let's just try it on something. Um, so we threw some muscle cells on there because we know how to make muscle very well. Um, and then I thought maybe if we mechanically stimulate the muscles, um, kind of mimicking our typical exercise training protocol, which we usually do one or two hertz for about 30 minutes a day, we'll try that and like maybe it'll have an impact on the muscle fiber length or the width um, or the force that it's producing. That's kind of ideally what I wanted to see or hoped to see, I would say. Um, but, you know, we cultured muscle on the gels, we moved them back and forth, we exerted forces on them, and then we looked at it after 10 days. And, you know, we shine light on the muscle, make it contract, and they were kind of essentially producing the same force and the fibers, you know, when you zoom in at like 10x, 20x objective, look about the same length, same width. And I was like, well, all right, that's a bummer. <laughs> like, I guess we didn't really learn anything there. Um, but just fiddling around with the microscope, we zoomed out at 4x just to see what the muscle fibers looked like. And here, um, we did note something interesting, which is that, you know, typically, if you're just growing cells 
even if they're oriented cells like muscle on a substrate, you'll see some local orientation of the fibers because they're pulling at each other and pulling on the gel under them. But there's no sort of global guidance cue in a 24-well plate telling all the muscle fibers to point one way or another. You can do that through protein patterning or microgrooves, but it's not going to happen on its own if it's just sitting on a gel. But we noted that in our mechanically stimulated gels, say we move from in an X direction, right, back and forth, all of the muscle fibers um, throughout the gel were oriented along the axis of gel movement. Um, so that was very exciting to us because it seemed to indicate that, you know, you're starting off in a myoblaster sort of proliferative stem cell-like state. The cells want to fuse with each other to form fibers, and there technically initially is not a bias in which adjacent cell they fuse with, but perhaps this mechanical stimulation is influencing the directionality of their fusion to adjacent nuclei, and so you see this sort of global programming of anisotropy in the muscle fibers. Um, so that was very exciting. We, we found just like an interesting way of patterning alignment in muscle tissue through mechanical stimulation, um, but more broadly, I think we're just interested in putting different kinds of cells on these sorts of substrates and seeing how they respond to mechanical cues. So dope. I got to say, I was just reading uh, today. It's a bit dated when this gets broadcast, but I don't care. I was just reading today in the Times about this cultivated meats thing, how it was kind of doomed um, until we have great leaps forward in the efficiency technology, all that. Uh, talk to your boy, Paul Burridge, Arun, about that for a second. But uh, in terms of like how science circles back on itself, this is the, the stuff, right? I mean, we've, we've known for a long time about the substrate and stiffness and it influences cell differentiation, organization, et cetera. But here's like a practical, I don't want to call it a hack. It's just an approach where you can get alignment of the fibers. I don't know. Maybe that's not going to solve the cultivated meats thing. But it's one of those kind of sidelines that circles back into industry and commercialization that has a real basic root. So cool. Thank you for sharing. Shifting gears a bit. I mean, you're an amazing person, uh, owing to your, your insights, you know, new lab, young, real go-getter. Uh, but we've had a lot of amazing people on the show. I'm not going to lie to you, Ritu. Uh, you got one thing that distinguishes you, though, I think, uh, that none of them can claim, and that's that you have a to-scale statue of yourself out there in the world that was part of this If Then She Can exhibit, in which 123 d printed statues of female innov innovators sorry, in uh, STEM were displayed in Dallas first and later at the Smithsonian. So, I mean, yeah, just speak to that. It's not enough to be a brilliant scientist anymore. You got to be like a collaborator mentor, advocate, all of it. Tell us about that experience, how it fits in with your impressive array of science advocacy and public outreach. Sure. Um, well, thanks for bringing that up. Um, it's funny, actually, I've been avoiding her. That's what I call her. Uh, the other were two. Um, I've been avoiding her on MIT's campus because it's a little weird, um, but I did walk past her yesterday because I had to. She's currently in the media lab. Um, I, I don't, you know, it's so funny because they took her by taking a 3D scan of me. So she 100% does look like me. But every time I look at that statue, I'm like, I, I feel like I'm taller. No, <laughs> like, 
anyway, um, but broadly, uh, I think the reason that sort of um, statue exhibit was very exciting is that, as you mentioned, it was part of a program called If Then, where um, a philanthropist named Delida Hill had this idea, you know, we elevate a lot of different kinds of role models in our society, and yet a lot of scientists who are doing cool and exciting work are not necessarily household names that we know about, right? And that makes it harder for people to trust science, to relate to scientists, and to think about science as a viable future career path, unless there's somebody specifically in their life that's, you know, pushing them in that direction. So her goal, um, and then sort of the broader organization's goal, was to think about ways that we could enhance visibility of um, modern day scientists, and particularly those who identify as women. And the statue exhibit was like one of many different things that we did through that program. There's exhibits in different sorts of museums, there's TV show, podcasts, um, trying to get to people wherever they are. Um, the statue exhibit was very fun because it was trying to address this problem that, you know, most of the statues in the U.S. Or around the world are of uh, male historic figures and role models. And it would be great to also highlight other people that are having an impact on the world currently. And they're 3D printed, which is like a fun technical element. They're orange, so they're very eye catching. Um, and they have sort of embedded QR codes so people walking by can, you know, read the name. Maybe they see a person that, you know their hair is like me, or they're holding a prop that reminds me of the hobby that I have. You see the name, you maybe read a one sentence description of what they do. I think mine says builds machines with living cells. And then you can scan the QR code to go and like learn more about their research spoken sort of at a layperson level. Um, so I thought it was a really fun and exciting way to engage with people. And I think the best experience that I had with it, I mean, having it at MIT is cool, but a little <laughs> awkward. Um, but when I was at the Smithsonian for the big opening celebration, there were a bunch of kids, you know, on field trips, walking around Washington, D.C., walking down the National Mall, and they come, they see it, and then they're like, is that you? Is that your statue? And they, like, want to learn more about what you do, and they're so excited, and you kind of get that field trip energy <laughs> that you haven't had in a really long time. Um, and it was just really fun to um, talk to the next generation in that way. So it's been it's been a fun experience. Yeah, that's that's super special. I mean, we've talked about it before on the show that visibility and representation is really everything, especially for like what you're alluding to, inspiring the next generation of scientists and engineers, right? I mean, also science communication is obviously something you're very passionate about and something very you're very good at. Um, and I think it's uh, it's a good thing that you're you know carrying the torch for science communication as well. We're, of course, fans of it on the show, obviously, as a stem cell podcast. Um, I'd like to think it's kind of our duty as publicly funded scientists to actually tell others, like what you're alluding to, and especially folks in the general public about our work and how it maybe might improve our lives down the road. Um, I mean, for fields like stem cell biology or bioengineering, we have so many cool technologies like what we're talking about here on the show that really capture the public's imagination. Like when I give talks to the general public, I talk about how I make beating human heart cells from a sample of somebody's own skin or blood, which is something that's like science fiction to a lot of folks, but it's reality, right? And um, I mean, like we were talking about, you're really good at this and, uh, you know, we encourage you to keep doing this, obviously. But could you just reflect on the importance of science communication, especially general science communication to the the general public, non-scientific audiences? I mean, do you think it's something that all scientists should be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost, I think it's it's funny because a lot of people sort of highlight it as something that is maybe 
an effortful thing that I do, um, but it doesn't feel particularly effortful or odd to me. Um, I've always, I mean, I always read a lot of books as a kid. I really enjoyed writing as a craft. Um, so that's always been a part of my life. And I think that thinking through ideas and writing them down and walk, you know, I even think about grant writing as an exercise in like writing science fiction, essentially, um, or close to future science fiction. But yeah, I just, I, I enjoy it. It's fun for me. And I agree with you that particularly if we want people to keep feeling excited about science, to learn from science and to keep funding the next generation of science and technology advances, the least we can do is kind of explain what we're working on, why we think it's important and why we're excited about it. Um, I also, you know, I a lot of my friends are scientists just because of where what I've been doing with myself the past 10, 15 years and who I hang out with. Um, but a lot of my friends are still not um, folks from high school, folks that I meet through friends of friends, my book club, mostly lawyers. Uh, my best friend is a photo editor. And those people also really care about the sort of things we're doing. And I think having those more informal interactions with them one-on-one, -on -one, people who are really smart but don't have discipline-specific training, um, explaining to them what I do, learning from them what they do has been very helpful in sort of honing these science communication skills. So if it feels like something that is um, difficult or inaccessible to people at present, you could start just one-on-one -on -one with somebody you know who does something slightly different um, and then build up from there. Yeah, it takes two to think. Uh, you're not the first yet, but you're among the few guests that, that we've had on the show that are married to fellow research scientists. In, in your case, just married to uh, another uh, relatively new PI, Ryan Flynn, who's across the block there at Boston Children's. So first, congratulations. Very exciting time in your life from all angles. Uh, but second, uh, what's it like to start your lab, start your life all at once, uh, particularly in a, in a place like Cambridge? Uh, that's both exciting, but of course, there's a lot of looking over your shoulder and intimidating and, and I don't know, a lot. So tell us about that. Yeah, thank you. Actually, in the previous question, I was going to bring Ryan up as, you know, he's a fellow scientist, but sometimes we have to explain things to each other at a very basic level. So I'm teaching him sometimes. So I teach a sophomore level mechanics and materials class for Mechies. And I'm always teaching him like, this is what force is. This is what stress is. And I, you know, am slowly getting a handle of cell surface RNA from him, but it's it's challenging. Um, but anyway, all is to say it is, it's for me, very exciting. I think some people might find it stressful to be around somebody all the time who has an equally stressful job. Um, but for us, I think, I mean, we're kind of lame in that we don't really have a ton of hobbies, right? Like our hobby is science. We both really are excited about what we're doing. We like thinking about it all the time. We have a lot of similar interests and friends um, and similar lifestyles and the way we think about running our labs. So it's been really great to have a partner to reflect on not only the science we're doing and talk through kind of interesting ideas, but also think about how to structure a lab, how to mentor a trainee that might be going through a challenging experience. Um, all those things, it's just good to have a buddy. I mean, I think I have a lot of new PI friends, but actually one thing that we were talking about at dinner last night is that, you know, most new PI friends, maybe you catch up with them once a month, 
sometimes if their office is next door to you once a week, potentially, but you're still getting a time averaged view of what they're experiencing and what they're saying. So depending on how they're feeling in that moment, um, you might be getting very different feedback on like how they're dealing with a grant or a paper rejection or things like that. Um, but when it's your partner, you get a daily ups and downs view, right? Of like, oh my gosh, I, I guess I'm happy I got this grant, but oh my gosh, I got this paper for review and it's very similar to what we're doing and I'm stressed. And you see the up and down more. And I think it makes you feel less like you're the only person going through those things. Um, so for me, it's it's been very helpful and I hope for him too. Um, he's in a stem cell regenerative biology department. So when he initially sent the podcast invite, I was like, we meet Ryan, but okay. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to have him on the show down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's that's super special. That's just really cool. And I mean, talking about just science and you're being you're in a hub for science, obviously, Cambridge, you know, Boston, MIT, everybody who's a scientist, stem cell biologist, whatever, bioengineer, you know, I'd say I'd like to think a lot of folks dream of just being there, just training there. I was there for three years during my postdoctoral fellowship, and it was just such an incredible, incredible place to be. Just the energy there is just un, unrivaled, honestly. But you've lived all over the place, right? I mean, we love talking to scientists because in part, we like talking about their journeys, right? You had a, a long journey to get to this point. Um, I mean, you've lived all over the world from India to Kenya to here in the U.S., and in this global scientific world, having that diverse worldview is undoubtedly an advantage, right? I mean, it seems like you've used your visibility and experiences to really advocate for a more diverse scientific workforce. Um, So tell us about that global path of yours and maybe a little bit about how you hope to inspire others who kind of travel down a, a similar road of like global training. So tell us about your road. Sure. Um, so my road started in South India in a city called Chennai. Um, my parents are both engineers and they were doing a lot of different sorts of interesting work throughout the years that took us to different places. So be- before I even remember um, having a conscious thought, we had moved to Kenya. That's where I remember growing up for the first few years of my life. Then we moved back to India for a couple of years and then bounced around several different places in the U.S., including sort of Philly, Iowa, Connecticut, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts. So mostly New England and Midwest, but some stints elsewhere. Um, But all this to say, you know, I think for a long time, I was very excited about and a little bit obsessed with the idea of MIT, because I think it holds a lot of sort of cultural, um, you know, pop culture, you see it and you're like, that's where smart people go to do science. And like, that's where I want to be. And like, I don't know, Tony Stark probably made his robot there. And that's what I want to do. So I came here and I would say that a lot of different people come here for somewhat similar reasons, right? It's held up as a pinnacle of education, Harvard, MIT, Tufts, Northeastern, all these great institutions in one place. And we're all coming here. And most people, though they might not have the exact trajectory I do, um, a lot of people have fairly similar things, right? Like bouncing around between different places, coming from different countries, and everyone has a sort of shared goal and interest um, in science and particularly the life sciences in the past few years. So I think it's been really helpful for me. What I learned from my experiences, at least bouncing around, is that people are almost exactly the same everywhere. Like people always ask me like, what did you like the most? Or where did you feel most comfortable? And I'm like, it's, I hate to tell you this, but particularly if you're just like a middle-class person, what do you do? You go to school, you come home, you have to go grocery shopping, you try to get your mom to buy you ice cream. Like none of these things were really different regardless of where I was. And, and people are very, very similar. 
Um, but you have to get past some externalities like accent or appearance or clothing style um, to get to that inner root of the person. So I'm glad for the training that helped me see that fairly early in life without thinking about it too much. Um, and I hope that it helps me be sort of a better community member at MIT because we do have such a diverse um, you know, student body and faculty body. And I hope that we can all sort of speak in ways um, that are understandable to each other. Yeah, I, I never thought of it that way, but I think that is a probably one of the greatest common denominators of all these academic institutes that are at the pinnacle is that they have a global citizenship. You know, when you're global, you feel comfortable everywhere. You've had to talk to others so much in your life that it comes naturally. And when you have a lot of, you know, diverse people speaking a common language, I can imagine that's fertile ground. So uh speaks to maybe the, the recipe for your success there is, is um that itinerant childhood and and young adulthood um so certainly something to aspire to and uh, a lot of stories you could tell there uh, amongst the science you shared with us also what a great life story before we let you go though uh we got a couple off off science science peripheral maybe questions um First is, what's the biggest misconception about science that you personally would like to resolve? Well, it's actually kind of related to what we were just talking about. You know, I had this very pop culture idea of what a scientist at MIT would be when I was growing up. And, you know, I think in most TV shows or movies, when we see a scientist, they're this like, often lone, but also like impenetrable genius that's like hacking away at code, but then they can also like do some DNA editing. And then they're also predicting when an earthquake's about to happen. And they have such a vast knowledge of so many different scientific fields at such depth um, that I feel, you know, on the one hand, I'm like that, I guess what you're doing is like you're painting a superhero or something, but you're not calling them that you're calling them a real person. And so you're setting a very unreasonable expectation for people, particularly young people who might not feel very sure about themselves in math and science, saying this is how smart you need to be in order to be a good scientist. Um, so the biggest misconception that I like to clear most of the time is that I feel like I've met a lot of smart people. I've been around the world and been at some great institutions. I have never met somebody like that. Um, and that's because I just don't think it's a reasonable expectation. Most people are really smart at one thing, um, whether it's in science or not in science. Um, and that pretty much always comes with effort. Um, so that's a big sort of misconception I like to clear away. That's such a great answer. It's like, remember that uh if you ever watch like CSI or any of these crime procedurals and they go to the video and they're like enhance and yeah. enhance something that's like a million yards away and it comes crystal clear. That's the idea. People think like technology or intelligence is about the end point, you know, enhance where the reality is, is that all those smarts and all that intellect and it's about the effort. It's about the struggle. It's about all those failures. And reality is that, that there's no shortcut to enhance. Uh, and, and the joy is in that struggle, right? But let me stop. Um, one misconception that I have to, you might have just you know misinformed some of the public. You thought that uh, Tony Stark made the Iron Man suit at MIT. I'm sorry, but too, everybody knows that he made it in a cave in the Middle East somewhere. Fair. Right. So Fair. let's just get that but out. But he learned. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he did. The bones were there at MIT, I'm sure. Final question. If you could have one superpower, what would that be? 
Yeah, my my husband and I talk about this one all the time, um, largely in relation to our experiments, because we come home and, you know, we tried something. I tried something in an engineering tissue, or maybe he tried something in a cell line. And we're always like, didn't do what I expected. And like, what's going on in there? And then we're always like, don't you just wish you could, you know, be very small Ant-Man style and just go see, like, what was the cell secreting? What did it, you know, did it push the matrix? What did it do? And obviously we're developing all these sort of chemical and mechanical tools to probe these interactions and understand it better. But man, imagine a world where you could just like go look inside your tissue and be like, yeah, this one's a dud, not going to work. I'm not going to spend the next three weeks, you know, changing media. That would be great. So I think that would be my ideal superpower. It's another reference to the Marvel universe, Ritu. <laughs> I think what we know, we know what you're doing on the weekends, but I'm with you on that. Oh man, when people say time travel, I'd like to go back in time. Yeah, I appreciate that as a superpower only so that I could have all the future knowledge of science, you know, that mm. would be the coolest application for me. Similarly, to have insight into those things that we can't see directly. But uh, we just have to get after it in the traditional way, Ritu. None of us are superheroes, but uh, we can we can do our best uh, to achieve the echelons that you yourself are, are approaching, Ritu. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope to hear a lot more from you soon. Thanks for having me. It was a great chat. All right, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Till the next time, you guys, thank you so much for listening.